Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the eighth edition of Digital Detectives, brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, we will be talking about expert witnesses and e-discovery, including some of our own war stories and some tips about how to select and use expert witnesses. John, let's begin with what you look for in, in an expert. I think knowledge is probably the most important thing because we see so many folks who are really wannabes. Uh, there's so many people that have entered this market so fast, and I think most people would agree that there's a very small component of expert witnesses who are known across the country that people have a lot of respect for. You also want to find uh, an expert that's unflappable because, of course, they're going to be cross-examined. And under cross-examination, attorneys come up with things you didn't know, you never dreamt anybody would ask, you haven't been prepped for the question. And of course, attorneys are not always very nice about asking their questions. So it's really important that your expert be somebody who's cool under under fire. They need to be prepared themselves, have their work product available, any notes they might need. They need to have a good amount of self-assurance, self-confidence. Um, they need to know simple things like pause before you speak, especially if you need to gather your thoughts, which is so often the, the case when you're on the stage. They have to speak English very well, and I mean this in two ways. First, they have to speak the English language itself very well. They have to be able to talk to uh, juries in particular in some cases where English might be the juror's second language. So they have to be very clear in what they say. Uh, they also have to be able to speak English in the sense they've, they've got to downgrade their tech talk. I know around here, when, when all my experts are sitting at the kitchen table over lunch, uh, it's almost impossible for me to follow some of what they say. They cannot talk that way when they're on the stand. They've got to reduce it to real-world language, complete with sports and television analogies, that kind of thing, so real people can understand what they're trying to tell them. Um, if they've given CLEs or other speeches, if they've written articles and books, uh, so much the better. That makes them a lot more credible, whether it's just a judge trial or whether it's a, a jury trial. They're less likely to face any kind of a, a challenge as an expert. Of course, you want them to have certification. Uh, currently, the certifications we see in co computer forensics the most are the ENCE and the CCE. Um, but you'd still be amazed, even with certifications, what crazy decisions can be made when, when an expert's status is, is challenged. One of our guys was challenged a couple years ago as an expert, and he had had years and years of working for law enforcement and then for us doing computer forensics. That's all he had done for years. And of course, he's certified and he's written articles and he's given presentations, but he was disqualified as an expert by one judge after opposing counsel challenged him on the grounds that his undergraduate major was in biology with a chemistry minor rather than in computer forensics. Now, we're talking about undergraduate level. And of course, at the time that this particular fellow went to college, computer forensics didn't exist as a major. But this was a rural area of Virginia. Uh, 
just a, a, a strange, strange, strange decision. It's one of the wackiest ones we've ever seen. It's never happened since, but you just have to be prepared for all of this kind of thing to happen. You also want to, when you're interviewing an expert, a prospective expert, go ahead and do some pretend cross-examination. Good experts not only don't mind that, they actually enjoy the intellectual challenge of it and the mental exercise. Uh, and it's a good way for you to see how they're probably going to do on the stand. If you do a really good job in selecting your expert, you're likely to end up with an expert who is going to do just a super job for you on the stand and it so often comes down to a battle between the experts that that selection process is really critical. Now, one of my favorite war stories, I wouldn't let John tell it, but I, I can tell this one. Uh, John, <laughs> you know which one I'm going for, John. Uh, I think so. <laughs> yeah. J- John, of course, is well known in Northern Virginia in the halls of the courtroom. And of course, he's very easily identified by his trademark ponytail. So we had a criminal case some years ago involving email harassment, allegedly by an employee against his boss. Now, the employee swore up and down that he didn't do it, and we, we believed him. You know, you get an instinct for truth-tellers in this business because we, we see so many liars. Um, so he would have lost his security clearance as well as his job had he been found guilty. He believed that his boss had written the emails to frame him. At the general district court level where we were at the time, there's a right to trial de novo in circuit court if you get a bad result. So the attorney elected not to ha- spend a lot of money and have John do a full-scale analysis. He simply wanted, since he knew he had a second shot, uh, he wanted John to introduce reasonable doubt by explaining and showing the court how easy it is to spoof somebody else's email. So John went to court to do just that, but we never got further than the hall outside the courtroom. The employee's boss was there with his counsel, a number of attorneys actually, and they took one look at John They went downstairs and they dropped all the charges. Now, that was one of John's sweetest victories. And I tease him that the ponytail won that one because that's all he had to do was show up with the ponytail. Uh, And of course, we'll never know the real story for sure. But dropping the charges sure seemed to indicate that our guy had, in fact, been telling the truth. Uh, And it is something that we've seen in many cases, not just, of course, involving John, who is well known here and nationally, but other experts who are really well known. The other side will not mess with experts like that. It's very powerful to have a well-known expert. Uh, and certainly we ourselves, when we are up against a well-known expert, we hone ourselves very carefully because we know them by reputation. We know how good they are. Um, and those are the folks in a really important case you want, the people who are really known by their reputation to be first rate. Uh, that's very interesting. I know one one thing that bothered you was there wasn't a heck of a lot of billable time that came out of that case either. <laughs> we only got a lousy hour, John. Yeah. Hey, whatever, and, and, you know? I, and I wasn't really bothered, but it was supposed to take quite a bit more time. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the reasons I like doing this stuff because the truth is the truth. So, so so be it. Well, we may never know what the truth was in that particular case, but I think I we have cover a fair some, guess. Yeah, I want to cover some tips, particularly for for some of the, the the folks that may be experts out there, and and also for attorneys as 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 examples of being on the other side. Um, as an expert, certainly know what you've ever written. Um, you know, as a lot of our listeners know, uh, we publish a lot of articles and we speak a lot, and it's et cetera that's out there. I had uh, one personal. A case where I was being cross-examined by a DOJ attorney. And as, as a sidebar, I want to say that the DOJ attorneys are generally very, very good at their job. Uh, and this particular attorney was, was no exception to that. Uh, certainly had done his homework, uh, had, had reviewed uh, all kinds of things that I had already written. And during uh, cross-examination, 
brought some of those articles and actually quoted some of those articles right back to me uh, during during part of this case. The point there is that remember what you've written uh, and be able to potentially clarify what what the attorney might be uh, might be trying to what path they may be trying to take you down. Uh, that that I, that really was a fun story. I remember when the um, the DOJ attorney came back down, and he knew, of course, who I was, and he actually stopped and shook my hand, and he he told me I d- did a good job uh, picking my business partners. I I didn't tell him that I did a good job picking husbands too, John, but he was impressed. <laughs> um, the other an, another thing is to if if you're unsure is to, is to ask the question to be repeated, and from the attorney side, certainly when you're asking your experts uh, the the questions, make sure it's very, very clear. Uh, we had one case, and I know you, you probably know, remember this story as, as well, Sharon. It was, it was actually, it wasn't too comical at the time that I was in the, in the stand, but uh, it was comical afterwards in, in speaking with the attorney uh, in that. Well, J- John, qu- you, should, you should mention too that this was your very first testifying case as a computer forensics expert. Yes, it was. So it, was it was the very a, first one, U.S. versus Gray, which is still taught at the FBI Academy. So, I mean, that, I mean, it, no wonder you were a little, <laughs> a little <laughs> nervous, but so was the attorney. <laughs> but uh, be, being an engineer by, uh, by, by trade and degree, uh, I'm very, very, well, I guess the, the folks around here call me Mr. Anal. So I'm very detail oriented. So I focus very much on, on what the question is and the specifics. And this attorney, as he asked the question, there were so many double negatives within it. And I'm, and I'm keeping track in my own head. Okay. He said, if not, all right, that makes it a positive. And then he went, no, this and okay, that turns it back around. And I actually lost track. (laughs) There were, there were so many. Um, and so I had to ask my own attorney, uh, uh, could you repeat the question? Um, so that was kind of, but don't be afraid to do that, you know, as an expert. And from the attorney side, again, Try not to confuse your experts. I know I was, as Sharon said, it was my, my first time on the stand. Very, well, he, very the, nervous. And the attorney was not comfortable either because he hadn't done a lot of these as well. So we're not dissing the attorney in any way. Right. He, he couldn't figure out how to ask the doggone question. So he got tangled up in his own shorts. And this is a first class attorney we're referencing here. He was he was a wonderful attorney, but he was out of his realm, too. Well, and that was in the early days of electronic uh, you know, evidence and, and information. Uh it was, gosh, I can't even remember how many years ago that was, Sharon, but it's still... It's still oh, it's, I do, Ni- 1999. <laughs> what a memory. Uh, <laughs> For useless <laughs> knowledge, yes. <laughs> but it was really uh, in, in the forefront of where electronic evidence was being presented. And as Sharon said, the attorney was not very comfortable with it at, at, at all and, and, and asking the questions or at least understanding or knowing, knowing any of that. Um, the, the other point I want to make is it's not just the attorney's at least the direct attorneys that that are going to ask you questions and and be prepared for others potentially in the courtroom to ask questions. Uh, we had one of our guys that was uh, in in another county in in Virginia here uh, testifying in a uh, in a child custody case, and as they went through the uh, the the testimony there, the the judge looked over at the guardian ad litem who was there and offered for the guardian ad litem to ask questions. So he stood up. And started firing away, uh, but again, it's not just the the your own counsel or opposing counsel. You may have other parties that are there. Uh, it's not uncommon as well to be on the stand where the judge judge themselves, he or her, uh, asks you direct questions uh, where you're going to have to clarify some things. And and also you want to explain your answers because sometimes you'll get 
a, count, a counsel on cross-exam, opposing counsel will want you to give a yes or a no answer. And if you have a yes but answer, the court's going to want to hear it. So make sure you don't let that one slide by. And then I have an, another quick tip. Be mindful of your appearance. Uh, we've seen some really bad-looking experts. I mean, they would they would win you know the, the, the worst costume of the day for an expert witness. Uh, and they lost credibility before they even got in the hand because their hair was in disarray. They weren't wearing good, neat clothes. I mean, they just look, we've seen them come in with combat boots, not not appropriate for a court. Um, so you need to know how to dress. It's really important, I, we think, to show up in a suit, uh, a conservative suit, you know, relatively conservative tie, et cetera, et cetera. Your hair is neatly groomed. Uh, and that has served our, our folks very well. We actually, for the uh, for the younger staff here, we've actually gone out and bought them what we call testifying suits. Um, and they like that. It's kind of a Benny because now they have a nice suit that they could wear to a, a wedding or a funeral as, a, as the occasion might warrant. But they love the fact that they get those and we take them over to Nordstrom's and they get a suit. You know, it's, it's a good deal all the way around. Um, one of the stories one of our guys came home to tell us was he had been down in Florida where the heat wave was just a phenomenal. It was over 100 degrees by 9 a.m. 9 and our guy had known to get over there, get in the air conditioning, blah, blah, blah. The opposing expert apparently had parked somewhere. He'd had to wander around outside in the heat, and he didn't obviously adapt to heat very well. So he came in and he was just soaked. I mean, he was soaked. And the only thing anybody in the courtroom could look at was his sweat stains. So you want to pay attention to anything and everything that might impact your appearance to make sure you're looking good and professional. Another bit of advice for for attorneys out there is is professional courtesy, um, and be aware of the the dates and be timely with your uh, with your experts and and their, and their schedules. Um, I would say for for the most part, uh, the vast majority of the folks that we deal with, they are in fact very very professional and they give plenty of notice. But we've had attorneys as well that you know I've I've received phone calls on a Friday afternoon. Uh, hey, can you tell me how much uh, or when you're available this weekend to go over your um, uh, your testimony for trial next Tuesday? And that Friday afternoon call was the first time we'd ever known that anything was going to be scheduled. So be very cognizant of that, that, you know, the your expert may, in fact, have other things already scheduled. Uh, and the, the work that that they've done, in fact, may have been done months, if not years prior to that. Uh, and if they're not aware of any any trial dates or deposition dates that are coming up, uh, it's going to come at them from right field, and they're not going to be prepared at all to be to be dealing with that. I'm not sure why they have such problems with that, but that is truly one of the things we've had the most difficulty with is just getting adequate notice so that we could schedule things and get them on the calendar. Once they're there, we're very good about it. But, you know, you can't call us on a Friday to come to trial on Monday and expect that we can simply come. I, I mean, there, there are personal events in our lives, not to mention the professional ones that might pr- prohibit that. But, but, but it is a minor amount of, of folks that do that. The majority do, do in fact, schedule. So... Yes. Well, I mean, of course, they want you to be there and, and uh, not have a problem. So it's in their best interest, obviously, to do that. Uh, another issue we sometimes have with attorneys is is we run across those, and, and they are the minority, but we run across those who are shopping for experts or trying to spin witnesses. Uh, 
I really have a problem with people who show up and, and talk about that. And we did have a New York attorney, I remember, who came in sitting in our conference room bragging about his skill at shopping for experts and getting them to spin the story his way. Uh, attorneys like that, I think, in this shop and every other <laughs> shop of repute are politely shown the door because they're in the wrong place. Uh, another, another problem we had, I, I know, John, this was one of our most famous stories. This was probably the maddest attorney or one of the maddest we've ever seen. He came from California on a really large case. And he uh, conveniently had our expert report already written and ready for uh, your signature. And of course, as we both looked at the report, we looked up at each other and we were both aghast because there was no way you could sign it. And it took us four hours of battling with the attorney, as you recall, to come up with a document oh, that yeah. you could le- legitimately sign. Uh, he was he was furious. I mean, he was really angry that you wouldn't just sign it. Uh, and ultimately, he ended up t- taking us off the case. And I, I hate to be a spoil sport, but when he lost the case, I was secretly kind Kind of pleased, um, but 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 good riddance to those people uh, because you can lose your reputation for integrity in a heartbeat. Having said that, we don't mind suggestions or polite inquiries. So sometimes we'll have an attorney say, "Would you be comfortable saying this? Uh, is there any way the conclusion could be a little stronger? Could we phrase it differently? Right, right. And then would you still be comfortable?" That's all good. Yeah, but if you're going to mm-hmm. do it the other way, it's not only unethical, but it's really dangerous to put your expert on the stand if they're uncomfortable with their expert report. Um, and of course, we've seen experts for sale too. And and those people, they get a reputation fast. And that's the last kind of expert you, you want. You want an expert on the stand that people just know cannot be spun. Very, very true. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Applied Discovery. Applied Discovery. A global leader in complex litigation preparation and management combines subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete and proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. Need the latest on e-discovery-related topics? Check out our new e-discovery center right here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll find podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more. Just visit our homepage at LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the eDiscovery Center logo. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are talking about expert witnesses and eDiscovery. One of the things we really want to stress is that attorneys have to get competent in e-discovery, even sometimes learning technology, not to be technological experts, but to know enough to do what they're supposed to do as attorneys. The judges just are not patient anymore with attorneys who aren't getting educated. We've had several cases where attorneys didn't even ask questions and acknowledge that they wouldn't know where to start, and that's of our expert witnesses. And in both cases, they, they lost. There was one that was a a spyware case where the husband had installed e-blaster to spy on his wife absolutely said I wouldn't know where to start, so I'm not going to ask any questions of the expert. Well, how is that competent representation by counsel? And then in another cautionary case, we had an attorney who had 
previously worked as a tax attorney and took a criminal case where we had the defendant's phone. The defendant had said, sent some very ugly text messages, but he said that they were in response to text messages from the complainant. Counsel never even got us the complainant's phone, which really might have shown that the defendant's conduct was at least explainable, maybe even justified. Law enforcement said that the, that the uh, deleted text messages could not be gotten from the phone, but in fact, we had tools that at least had a fair shot at doing so. And then to compound his errors, after hearing that we had the possibility of getting evidence, but only the possibility, he asked our, our uh, employee on the stand, so you're sure you could get the deleted messages if you had the phone, right? And of course, that wasn't what we had told him. Uh, we had to answer no and explain the situation. Of course, the prosecutor picked right up on this and said, but you never got him the phone, right? And that made the counsel look not very competent. So it really is important to pay attention to electronic discovery and the technological nuances of these cases, however much a technophobe you may be. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe maybe a little bit more on the the incompetent side, or I don't know if I would use incompetence that, that strongly, but but certainly listen to your experts and, and what they're trying to tell you. A lot of times it, it when we're dealing with the, the electronic evidence, especially in the forensic side where where we get we're very heavily involved, there's some very complex technical things that are that are occurring that you may in fact want to stay away from. Uh, I've, I had one personal experience where I came right out and told the attorney, "Don't ask a question about this one particular subject because it's going it's too complicated and it really doesn't help our client, <laughs> at least uh, in, in that realm. So what did she do? She asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, don't we hear this all the time from our guys? Oh, man. They'll come, they come home all the time and they say, we told the attorney not to ask the question. And we all look at each other and, and like a little chorus, we go, and they asked the question, right? <laughs> and they oh, did. Yeah. And, it's, and it's amazing because it, it, op- it opens things up. Now, is, is that, could you call that incompetence? Yeah, probably. Uh, but it's, you know, listen again. Listen to your to your expert because we are talking about technical issues here, and uh, and and certainly the the thing. And I think you know, I I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to law school, but you know, from what I've heard, is never ask that that open ended question or the question that you don't know the answer to. Right? Don't they teach you that in law school, Sharon? Uh, yes, in theory. <laughs> in theory. So, uh, but but the, the reverse holds true as well. Even if you do know the answer and the expert's telling you, don't go down that road, I, it just amazes me how many times that the, the, the attorneys actually want to head down that road. Yeah, I, I actually want to expand on that just a, a little bit because this happens all the time. Um, if the expert says, don't ask about viruses don't ask about viruses. And this happens a lot specifically in child pornography cases where the defendant basically wants to say the evil internet did it. I did not. Yeah, the um, Trojan horse defense. The, yeah. Trojan <laughs> horse worms, you name it. Uh, there, there's supposedly they got some very convenient virus, which did the downloading of the child pornography. Uh, this is an old favorite song, which almost never works, rarely holds any viability as a defense. So we always tell attorneys, don't go down that path, especially where there's already clear evidence that the defendant was actively searching for child porn because we have the search terms or we can prove user initiated action to download the child pornography. And yet counsel seems sorely tempted to use this defense. And it always results in our having to say to the court that 
no, we don't really believe that viruses or some other kind of malware cause the download. And in most cases, you know, when you've got your own experts saying that, and we have to say that because it's the truth, that's really going to seal the defendant's fate. So it just doesn't make any sense to go down that road. So I don't know why they do it. Yeah, amen. Uh, another thing, another tip for for a lot of uh, attorneys, and this gets into the the whole cooperation, is get your experts together. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, the, the truth is the truth, and that's what we're trying to, to to find here. When you get your experts together on the technical subjects, they in fact may be able to save you money, get to the answer a lot faster, uh, and just move forward. Uh, one particular case that we had, which really is an example of that, is where we had. Uh, uh, a hospital that was acquired by a, a, a larger hospital, a larger entity. And at the time, they happened to be involved in a lawsuit. So uh, certainly, you've got a duty to preserve the information, etc. But yet, from a business perspective, these guys needed to move forward uh, so that it wasn't too burdensome on them. And and they were very, very agreeable, etc. Uh, the way it ended up, we had we're still trying to preserve, but still trying to, to meet the business needs and, and move the the hospital merger together. Um, so I put a proposal forward to our attorney and said, "Hey, can we talk to the other side, the other experts there, and say this is I think how we can do uh, and and still preserve the information, but still allow them to upgrade their servers, their environment, their communications, et cetera, and and, and meet with this merger." So that's in fact what we did. We had a we had a conference call, talked with the other expert, and uh, he wasn't familiar with the tools that I was talking about. So I suggested that we run a test, which we did, uh, and in fact said it and proved that we would be preserving all the various information, dates, et cetera, that that were were critical in the case. Uh, at the end of the day, we saved a heck of a lot of money. We still preserved the data. Uh, we didn't get into a battle in court, throwing motion after motion. And uh, the business continued forward and they, they ultimately ended up settling. So, you know, that, that's the, the feel good story there. Well, it's not only a feel good story, it's instructional because all we mm -hmm. see is people racking up huge bills by fighting with one another. This was a case where we had a good attorney, the other side had a good attorney, the other expert was a good expert, uh, and everybody was trying to collaborate. Nobody was trying to fan any flames. Everyone was right. trying to figure out what to do. I mean, it really was a study in why collaboration works, and, and it worked brilliantly in that case. And I know, John, every time we talk about collaboration, we tell that story. Um, and how how many times have we yep. seen it since then? <laughs> Not so uh, much, right? Counted on one hand. Yeah, one hand is right. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, to, to tell folks a couple of stories from the trenches here that, that are kind of funny, you know, we do sit around at the kitchen table uh, having lunch with, with our expert witnesses and forensics and you know, we teach them. Focus. Focus on your testimony. Focus on what you're doing. You know, Get the distractions out because distractions are going to lead you somewhere else. You know, don't focus on people's anger or anything else. Focus on what you're doing. But it's not always easy. Uh, I know one of our experts came back from, again, a trip to rural Virginia, which I hasten to say we love. But law is practiced a little differently in the rural areas. So he's testifying. Um, actually, our guy, I guess, was sitting down at that point. The other side was testifying, their expert. Right, and right. Every, every, everybody hears a little jingling noise. And it's like, what's that? And then they hear it again. And 
in this case, the judge's chamber was actually right behind the bench. And so the jingling noise turns out to be uh, a dog collar and tags and out comes this little dog uh, and it's the judge's dog. And the dog comes over and starts, you know, licking the witness on the stand. Uh, and I'll do, I'll do credit to the witness. He kept his composure. So I guess his employer had taught him about focusing and ignoring distractions. And then, of course, the dog just wanders around a little while and, you know, jingle, jingle, jingle. And everybody just has to keep on going. And finally, the dog went over to the uh, the gallery and fell asleep. So, you know, the, that dog obviously owned the courtroom. So welcome to practicing in uh, uh, rural areas of the country sometimes. Uh, and, and there was another case where one of our guys was testifying. It was a spyware case, again, where husband had put spyware on wife's computer, which happens more often than the other way around, although we've seen it. Um, and, and our uh, employee noted that the defendant was messing with something under the table. Now, he, you know, he remembered, you know, don't don't focus on distractions. So he's focused on what he's supposed to be doing. But the wife later told him that her husband, the defendant, had a prayer book and he was jiggling under the table and blowing curses on our employee. Uh, so strange things happen as an expert witness. And I'm happy to say that so far, our employee seems none the worst and does not seem to have been seriously impacted by the curses. But you have to be prepared for almost anything to happen when you're sitting as an expert witness uh, in that seat. It is a hot seat. The, the last thing that the point that I want to make here is, is, a, is a recent change that, that came up in uh, December 1 of last year, uh, a change of the federal rules regarding expert uh, witness discovery. And as you know, Sharon, we've done a lot of expert reports. And, and the good news is that we don't end up in court all that often, that they settle and or um, after the reports of the depositions, then there's a, you know, that's, that's the end because uh, they, they stop there and don't take it to trial. But during that whole process, uh, if you're a testifying expert, there used to be this distinction between testifying expert and consulting expert. And if you're a testifying expert, then everything that you do, all your communications, all your draft reports, all that stuff was discoverable. And we went through all kinds of hoops and things to make sure that we didn't have any drafts. We did everything by phone you know, et cetera. And it, it actually was kind of crazy to, wouldn't you agree? So some yeah, of the yeah. steps that we well, went through. And we, we overwrote every draft we wrote, we overwrote it with the, the next draft and then the final overwrote the other drafts. And, you know, we did faxing. I mean, we, yeah. we had all kinds of craziness that we did to try to keep stuff from being available to be discoverable. And, but the good news is now that rule 26 no longer allows that full discovery of those draft reports. So I, I think that's going to be a big change. Uh, it's going to be ch cheaper now to in litigation because you're probably not going to need a expert, um, a testifying expert, and a consulting expert. In other words, two different people. The same individual will be able to do that. So, you know, if, if the, our listeners out there are not familiar with that recent change of the federal rules, and then certainly uh, look that up and, and review that that change in, in Rule Twenty Six. And that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at www.legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's computer forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.